Welcome to the Rising Warrior Podcast. We are here to provide a holistic approach to the betterment of warriors, helping warriors bridge the gap in their healing journey, find themselves, find who they truly are, and provide tools to help themselves and in turn help others. We are here to break the mold and discuss what it takes to thrive in life. So let's rise above together. Today, we have the great pleasure of talking with Aaron Gennetti. Aaron Gennetti is a self-defense specialist, a gym owner, and an author. He has been teaching and training self-defense full-time for the last 14 years. His book, How to Survive an Active Killer, takes a true look at what your options are for dealing with an active shooter event. This was a great podcast where we talk about training in multiple realms, whether those realms are physical, psychological, or emotional. We also talk about what it means to have a tactical sense versus an emotional sense. If you find any of this episode entertaining, interesting, or valuable, please share this information so that it can get into the hands of those who need it. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Aaron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, We're going to open with a really good question that I like. Uh, Many times, military and their first responder community likes to train in the physical realm. And they tend to neglect many other realms, such as the psychological and emotional. Uh, I would like you to talk more about training in multiple realms. Yeah. Um, So, you know, this is a, we see this oftentimes with military, law enforcement, firefighter. I mean, this is human in general, right? Um, Even me as a fighter, when I came into it, I was, you know, intuitively attracted to the physical side of it. I, I enjoyed working out. I enjoyed hitting things at the time I needed it. Um, but we, we have a tendency to overlook the emotional side of things and physical training in general will give you, um, you can call them side effects if you want, or icing on the cake. It'll give you benefits to the emotional side. It'll give you definitely benefits as far as a psychological edge. However, in the long game, what we tend to see is that if we're lacking any type of dive into uh, psychological, especially when it comes to self-defense training, which is an area in which I, you know, the majority of my expertise is in, um, the psychological will put you behind the edge big time. The emotional is really a huge piece that will can oftentimes come back and, and bite people in the ass. Um, and it can happen in a lot of different ways. So if we were, let's just say, we have a, a, a very skilled, you know, let's, let's use Navy SEAL because that's something that somebody who maybe is, you know, isn't law enforcement or military, we still have this ideology that like, oh my God, the SEALs are, you know, insanely mm-hmm. trained and all that type of stuff. So let's use that as a, you know, anecdotal or a, the analogy here. So you have a Navy SEAL, he's got a lot of physical training. Um, we're going to assume that, you know, if he's gotten to the point where he's out on missions, he's done pretty well, uh, understands what's going on, things like that. Well, there's a huge component that goes into it where when shit actually hits the fan, the ability to process information and make the best possible decisions is partially about the physical skill set that came up to it, because hopefully you've been faced with X amount of problems and given X amount of answers, and then you have an idea, uh, idea there. But the idea to process through stress or what could be a stressful situation is actually dexterity emotionally and psychologically. It's not necessarily dexterity physically, if that makes sense, right? So it's one thing to 
be able to, you know, make the shots you need to make or, you know, breach a door, make entry or follow through with tactics in certain ways. But if things shift, if something goes the way that you didn't think it was going to go, you usually get cut off. And that's the emotional side of things that gets things going where it's like, oh, shit. And now I have to be making decisions under stress. Um, and that's a huge piece of the puzzle where the triggers the, uh, the, in our experience, the internal stories, the hothead the person that is stubborn and doesn't listen to commands, uh, the person that has, we can laughing. Uh, the person that let's say has some type of, you know, pent up story about, um, you know, uh, authority or, or the person that to that point has been making their way through training or making their way through a lot of things through bravado and puffing their chest up. And now they're actually faced with a situation that goes the wrong way if you don't have that psychological component or the emotional component to a level in which you have a plan to regulate it, that's where, where things in the moment can go very bad. Um, and so that's something in the moment, if we look at the long term, if I haven't addressed that in training or I haven't created a plan around, you know, addressing my internal stories or leaning into breath work or understanding yourself and what triggers you, well, then if we were to take mm. that in the long term, and now we're talking into our you know, PTSD realm, well, we've, we've essentially let ourselves dig a hole without a process of working our way out of the psychological aspects after the fact. Um, and, and the longer we avoid those processes before we realize that, oh, shit, we actually need some help here, the deeper that hole is, right? Um, so that's it's what you find oftentimes, like, uh, at least in my experience, and we all know we're, we're all limited by our experience. Even if our experience is vast, mm -hmm. we're still very limited by our own personal experiences. And in my experience, dealing with, um, you know, former military, even law enforcement, um, victims, civilians that were victims of violent attacks, uh, a lot of the situations where you get into the big overarching PTSD is that the had they been trained or supplied with a plan to address those stories sooner, as in like immediately after the fact, start working through those stories, there's a significantly higher potential that we don't find them at the deep part that they're at by the time they actually go seeking help. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of edges to that. Like, again, we're using something very specific with PTSD and making decisions under stress and stuff like that. but with us, like I, I teach a lot of civilians, I teach law enforcement, uh, we got plenty of firefighters, um, I've done a couple of, you know, uh, uh, like deals where I guess trainings for military groups and stuff like that. The physical side is the easy part. Um, if we're being honest, it's in, in the grand scheme of things, the physical mm -hmm. side is the easy part. The psychological and emotional side is very, it's a lot more uncomfortable. It's one thing to, to, you know, do a terrible workout and exhaust your body and feel muscle fatigue and feel like you can't continue physically, but you can always just check out of that. You know, um, when you, you have to sit down and face yourself and the stories that are coming through and any past traumas you've had, that's significantly more difficult. However, if you can lean into that, what ends up happening is it creates clarity on the physical side. You're, you're a lot quicker to execute um, on tasks that need executed on, you generally have a clear head under stress in which you can actually make the best decision possible 
under whatever the circumstances are. And it's not, or it is less influenced just by emotional response. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, like in self-defense, um, um, decisions made strictly based off of emotional reactions and emotional response can get people killed, get people killed. Or in the scan- grand scheme of like, let's look at law enforcement can get people to make bad decisions or what can be viewed publicly as a bad decision that then gets this day and age gets torn apart Mm. (laughs) where had they had just a little edge. Yes. There's a, there's definitely a physical training component that is lacking in that industry in general, which we can, I will gladly have that conversation, (laughs) but a big piece of that competency to be able to actually go out and execute the tasks they need to do also comes from their ability to keep their emotions I mean, I hate I hate the term in check, like you're regulating and like holding it down, but they understand to feel how do my emotions play into my decision making and how do I gain clarity from that? So that, yeah. you know, we talk about this a lot in the elliptic community, right? Like creating space between stimulus and response. Mm-hmm. That's where emotion comes in. Um, we see that very it's it's more tangibly, uh, or I say more tangible and more visible, I feel in the physical side of components, like I can tell I'm, I'm either getting better or something at something or I'm not. So like, if I told you to do, you know, whatever, if we were taking some law enforcement officers through some jujitsu or something like that, and it's like, you know, your first rep of doing a basic arm bar from guard was garbage. Right. And after 100 reps, we can visibly see that you're tightening it up. That's very easy to see. It's tangible. Mm-hmm. It feels right. Well, the problem is when you get against somebody who doesn't want to be arm barred, it's completely different. It's not just the ability to do the arm bar. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to make decisions and see three or four steps ahead and maybe bait something this way and have a clear mind when you get into that and you're not panicking. Well, that would be the analogy I would give to, to the idea of having a plan and working through the emotional side of things, and the psychological side of things in supplement to the physical training, which I feel is the, the most lacking. And I mean, guys, like we're talking, we can take this super deep into internal stories, but honestly, like the easiest place to start is breath work. Mm. Like I tell me one, tell me one physical skill set, physical art, physical sport that doesn't at least talk about breath in some form. It's usually performance based, right? So, Hey, you know, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. Like, you know, we've Mm -hmm. heard that thousands of times for like running and endurance and all that type stuff, or uh, you know, like when we talk about weightlifting, you know, I'm a, I'm a weightlifting CrossFit strongman, whatever coach as well. Um, you know, we're talking about bracing. So how do I create stability and support in the midline to support the spine? So you don't blow your back out. Um, we talk about breath work there. So we all know that like the breath is the center of everything, whether it's mm-hmm. from a performance standpoint or whatnot, flip that on its head and start looking at it in training as how do I utilize breath in training to then regulate the, the central nervous system or regulate my sympathetic versus parasympathetic response. And honestly, I've created insanely calm, smart, uh, um, tactical fighters only talking about that. I haven't even had the opportunity yet to sit them down and be like, who hurt you? Mm. Let's talk about your past and get into that. <laughs> but, That's next but, week. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're still in the courting phase. You wait six months and we'll, we'll crack open a bottle of bookers and get you to cry and, and we'll fix a lot of things. 
but but we know breath work is powerful like it's it's you know again like i said find find a sport or an art that doesn't talk about breathing from a performance standpoint um now i encourage people to lean into it from a, a nervous system standpoint like imagine even in shooting i'm a firearms instructor we teach people breathing patterns we'll even teach box breathing for shooting Mm -hmm. shooting at the bottom of a breath so that the body is is still you don't have you know you're taking as much away from it as you can it's like okay that's phenomenal but if we really break it down outside of tactics what are we doing we're getting you to calm the fuck down slow your Mm -hmm. mind down Mm -hmm. be present with the firearm be present in what you're trying to get done uh and in however we stop it there it's like more often than not in my experience it's stopped there it's like this is breath work for performance well, if we take that two steps farther and go, man, like you feel yourself locking up, building awareness around that, focus in on your breath, lengthen your exhales and watch the way you fight better. Watch how you can see things better. Watch how, you know, things slow down. Um, so that's my, that's my long winded look at what's going on. The, the psychological and emotional components, definitely the psychological, but the psychological and emotional components they're what create, in my opinion and in my experience, better decision making. Mm-hmm. After I've made that decision, my ability to act on that decision is the physical skill set. But those I aren't have... the same. You know what I mean? Like you can you mm. can train the same flow and the same combination you want all day, but when to execute that comes down to decision making. And decision making relies heavily on staying like at the exact level between sympathetic and parasympathetic that you need. Cause I can, you know, we can go too far sympathetic. I can mm-hmm. get her uh, parasympathetic. I can go too calm when I need to be fucking through the roof. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's being able to know how to push yourself forward or pu- pull yourself backwards and be able to regulate. And a lot of people in my experience, especially in my industry of, of self-defense, defensive tactics, um, anything along those lines, that's an area where there's a lot of growth opportunity um that in my opinion mm. is being missed a lot mm. yeah I'd, i would say you know as as a former you know crossfit gym owner and you know being in the military and just the experiences that i've had you know across the board i mean that is that like those two areas the, the emotional and psychological like we're falling short across the board mm-hmm. and like we're seeing uh yeah we're seeing the impact of that Right. Like, like you said, like fitness, like the physical side of things seems to be the thing that catches people's eyes. Like I want to go learn how to lift better or to get in better shape or learn how to fight, learn how to shoot and do all the physical things. And like you're saying, without that uh, emotional and psychological factor, like we're only scratching the surface and it's, it is, it's super important. And, you know, especially, you know, my experience of being in the military and being on a deployment, like I could shoot all day. Like, and I was physically fit. That was fine. Those weren't issues during my training. Those weren't issues during my deployment. The the issues came when shit hit the fan, for instance. It's like, how am I going to respond? Can I think clearly under duress, right? And like, that's another huge component of it that uh, I imagine is talked about <clears throat> at least to some degree where like your ability as a fighter is going to be dictated by your ability to think clearly because when it, it's one thing in training, right? Like you're saying, like you can train all day, you can learn the skill set and, and the physicality of it. But when you get thrown into the fire, all of a sudden that's not the case, 
right? Like, mm. yeah, we want the reps in, we want to get the reps in, we want to be able to shoot and, and have all the physicality of it because we can rely on that to a degree. And at the same time, like that is so highly dictated by our psychological and emotional states. So I'm glad that you, you definitely uh, touched upon that. And, you know, one of the, the first questions that comes to mind is like, how are you or are you? And if you are, how are you uh, implementing this and integrating this into the training that you're doing? Yeah, that's a, a phenomenal question. Um, you know, let, to segue just before that, to add one piece on top of what we've been talking about, like one of the biggest things that we run into, this is something that would tie over into law enforcement. You know, I primarily teach civilians when it comes to firearms training, but when it comes over to law enforcement, um, and then later on, I, you know, I, I imagine we're going to get to the idea of on duty versus off duty and how tactics mm -hmm. change and stuff like that. But one of the biggest things that we, we encourage people right out of the gate, like somebody walks in brand new into a firearms training with us. I address two things right out of the gate. The very first thing I, you know, I ask him is why do you carry a firearm? And more often than not, it's well, self-defense. I want to protect myself. I want to feel safe. Um, you know, and we flip it on the head. We want them to stare down exactly what they're doing. And I say, okay, well, that's realistically, you carry a firearm in case you need to kill another human being in defense of yourself. And you have to, you have to, you have to look at that head on. Mm -hmm. Don't carry a firearm to feel safe. You carry a firearm because if the situation dictated it, I'm going to need to kill another human being and not maim. You can't think about maim. Every round that comes out could potentially yep. kill. So I carry the firearm because I am willing to kill another human being if it means protecting myself, people I love, and, and to that standard, whatever the context is. And it's like, well, that's the first piece of the puzzle. Because if you walked into this in, with the wrong intention in the wrong context, we're already off on the wrong foot, right? Mm -hmm. Well, once we have that, then the next conversation with them is, you know, how does that make you feel? Well, that feels like shit. I don't really want to kill anybody. Exactly. So the majority of our training should be based around the tactics of how to execute and use the firearm properly and how to do everything within our power to not have to draw the firearm in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge piece of the puzzle, right? So the reason I stack that in there and I want to make sure we make that point is that that's the psychological and emotional conversation as opposed to what you're going to find in the majority of defensive handgun classes or con uh, concealed carry courses across the U.S., which is, oh, you're here to learn how to use a gun. Awesome. Mm. Let me show you how to shoot things. And it's like, okay, let shooting a stationary target is simple. It really is. Like I can take, I have taken people that are insanely nervous around firearms or whatever, and I can get them to shoot high center chest with a relative proficiency within, you know, eight to 12 feet, which is where the majority of defensive shootings are going to take place. Like that shooting is simple. Mm -hmm. Psychologically, being able to decide when do I pull my gun? When do I, you know, maybe brandish my firearm to, to talk a situation down? When do I remove myself? How do I do verbal judo to handle that? There's a, a social literacy that goes into that whole entire conversation. What happens when I pull this firearm out? Even if it is a rightful shooting, I can still be taken to court. I can still lose some of my rights. I can still be sued. What's that mm -hmm. going to do to impact my family? Like there's this whole thing. And you're going to run and face into that. You might as well face it and prepare for it ahead of the game mm. to, to get into a better place. So I segue that in there because that's huge for civilians. It's definitely huge for law enforcement. I mean, that, you know, the last 
five years, especially that's been a hot topic is use of force. Um, when we get into it, but this also segues into your question, Sean, which is, so how are you implementing this? And it's first off, it's being a lot more in our experience, uh, open and honest conversations. Like we're very big about communication with why, like, what is the intention of what we're doing in this class? Cause that already starts to change things psychologically. If you showed up here to learn how to make, you know, quarter size groupings for 30 feet away on a target with a handgun, you're missing this class. And this is not the class for you. This is the class that's I'm out with my five-year-old. I have to put myself in a position where they're not getting harmed. I'm faced with a lethal force threat. I have to get in possibly some type of physical altercation while trying to protect my kid, get to a different position to then access my firearm, potentially put shots on target while I'm fucking stressed out, running around, potentially already bleeding and injured, all while keeping in mind that my son is seeing all of this happen. So he's going to have fucking psychological issues down the road. And it's like, that's what we're here to talk about. Oh shit. I didn't know that's what we were doing. Well, that's what defensive shooting is. Like, right. I don't care who you are. When you leave a violent encounter, you are different. Mm -hmm. you, it's everybody responds differently and they're going to respond with different degrees. And in our experience, they may have different triggers. However, everyone's changed to some degree, whether you become slightly more numb to emotion, whether you become slightly more reactive to triggers and emotion, whatever that thing is, and it may only move you, you know, a millimeter, you will be changed from violence saying mm -hmm. otherwise is historically inaccurate, you know? So that's the first step is like, let's center on what we're actually talking about from a psychological standpoint. Um, we teach a program, you know, that I travel around and do seminars with called knife control concepts. And, and it's like, look, we're talking about using a knife or defending against a knife in some form or fashion. Like, are you, you know, oh, I carry a knife for self-defense. That's awesome. Have you ever thought about actually having to stab another person? Yeah, I would totally use my knife to defend myself. No, no, no. no. Have you ever thought about what it would feel like to take a piece of metal and insert it inside of another human being and then Jesus. have their blood on your hand and all that type of stuff. And then, well, who, I haven't really thought about that. And it's like, well, yeah, like we need to think about that now mm -hmm. before you find yourself in the middle of a situation where now all of a sudden you have a knife in your hand and you did stab another human being. And now the road that you just set yourself on, because we weren't prepared for this experience, we were prepared for the experience we saw in our mind, in the movies and everything else. We weren't prepared mm -hmm. for the real life experience. And now all of a sudden it's the psychological traumas from that, whether that situation even goes well, the, the legality that goes behind it. So we put people in an appropriate mindset so that all of a sudden they start to realize, oh, wow, there's a psychological component to this. So before we even teach them how to address the psychological component, it's really just shining a light on the psychological and emotional component of self-defense or defensive tactics in general. Um, so that's step one in, in our experience. And then that starts to in historically bring out very good questions. You start engaging people with it. Um, and then there's a thing, you know, we're all for the most part inside of the enlifted community. And so we've, we've seen what happens when you dive deep. Um, and you, you, we have to introduce things gradually, right? 
Like if every single person that showed up for uh, a jujitsu lesson, I sat them down and was like, all right, let's talk about zero to seven years old. And you know, the bad things that happened to you, <laughs> uh, I would, I wouldn't have much of a business. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, or I definitely have a different demographic. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, you know, it's, it's, if you're going to get them to buy into this, you play the long game, they have to see why it's important. And then they need a little bit of success. Right. And so the, the, in our experience, in my experience dealing with this, you know, I have to show them why are we doing this? Why is this important and get them talk thinking about things that they've either already thought about or has at least passed their mind in some form or fashion. It can't be removed, you know? Mm-hmm. So like if I go to a law enforcement officer and I start giving, uh, uh, you know, an anecdotal story from a civilian standpoint that involves disengaging and running away because we don't want to be involved in a threat. It's like, well, buddy, that's not my job. I can't relate to that. My job is I have to stay here. I have to engage in this threat. I have to protect the community. So we've got to give them something that makes sense to them Mm. around a pain, a pain point. I mean, it's, I mean, really guys, it's sales and marketing, but for their own thing. So they have to address a pain point, something we know that they've at least touched in some form. And then you've got to give them a win. And for us, the, the, for me, in my experience, the easiest access point is the, the impact in their focus through breath. And it, I don't have to have a long conversation with them. I, I explain to them very simply, hey, look, we're going to do this drill awesome. That drill looks great. And then we're going to do this drill awesome. That drill looks great. And it's like, hey, you know what? This time, you know, do the drill. Keep running what you're doing. And I want you to just pay attention to your breathing. I don't want your exhales to be a little bit longer than your inhales. And you all of a sudden, hey, we're going to do audible breathing as well. So as you're doing this hand fighting drill, I want you to be going. Mm. And so again, like I, I'm, I'm give, they need, uh, in my experience, if they feel it, they'll, they're more likely to buy into it and breath mm-hmm. work, simple breathing is a very, very easy way to show people that. And I use that all the time. I'll use that with hand fighting drills. Um, I'll use that with, you know, firearms drills. I'll use that with use of force and force on force training. Hey, we're going to slow down the entirety of this drill, you know, to to 60% with your opponent. Uh, And I want your main focus, do everything you know how to do. I want your main focus to be on your breath work. And my only cue to you throughout the entirety of this session is going to be about your breathing. If I notice you're doing shallow breathing or erratic breathing, I'm going to remind you to come back to your breathing. And they're like, well, shit, man, this is like a force on force. He's got a SIM gun. I've got a SIM gun. We're in full kit fighting each other, like fuck breathing. And it's like, just trust me, you do what you do. And I'm going to get you to focus on your breathing. And you get them in, in a a context where they start to associate breathing with success, you know, breathing with success. Um, That to me is the, the, there's a huge ROI in that. And it's also the Mm -hmm. lowest hanging fruit. Um, It doesn't require a deep dive into language. It doesn't require, you know, a lot of things past that. Um, It's very accessible right out of the gate and you will feel it. You will absolutely feel the difference um, coaching into that. So that's the, the first place. The assumption then, Sean, you know, long-term is if they continue to come back, um, we, we give another nugget and another nugget and another nugget. Um, and, and another huge component of that is if they do continue to come back, I need to show as the one that, you know, essentially they're looking to, I need to show that I'm doing the same work, mm. right? Mm-hmm. 
and that's a huge piece of it too. Like if they see me tensing up and freaking out during a, a force on force scenario, they're going to be like, what the fuck, man, you just told me to breathe. Like, why aren't you breathing? <laughs> you know, or, you know, if I lose my cool in some situation, you know, they're going to be like, Hey man, you've been talking to me about, you know, keeping my you know parasympathetic in check or regulating my emotions. Like I saw you lose your shit. Um, and so you got to show that you're putting in the work and, and I, you know, lead by example is one that, um, has been very powerful for me. Um, so like I will, I, you know, when I first started with the language game a couple of years ago, that's language work in my industry is, I should say our, our approach to language work Mm. in my industry is, uh, is very odd for people. Um, Mm. almost uncomfortable to a certain sense because we will talk about words and language, but again, it's usually from the form of tactics. So these are the words you should say, like, you know, for instance, this is a terrible analogy, but it gets the point across. <laughs> like the idea that, you know, if I'm putting somebody in cuffs and I'm going, stop resisting, stop resisting. Like that's the verbalization tactics mm. that was told. It's like, hey, let me point out to everybody that this person is resisting. I don't want them to resist. Those are verbal language tactics, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. When I talk about our version of language is, you know, flipping negations into affirmations when coaching, mm-hmm. removing soft talk, um, you know, disengaging from, from, you know, the, the higher level people banging heads over their tactics and motherfucking this guy and all that type stuff, like getting, <laughs> moving away from that and becoming very positive about the way we talk about things, you know, uh, leaning forward and being like, Hey, you know, in my experience, this has worked. I don't know. I'm limited by what I've got going on here's what it is. Let me see what you've got. Um, you know, talking to people through that people started noticing that and they're Mm. like, what the fuck is with this guy? Um, you know, (laughs) I would, I would get that. And then little by little, the more you put stuff out, like posts into that, they would be like, Oh man, you know what? Uh, you know, I really love your, your, your uh, Wednesday words post. And it's like, I'm a defensive tactics instructor. You know what I mean? Like people, you know, I've, come in and they, you know, normally you'd be like, Oh, I follow the defensive tactics instructor. Cause they're going to show me how to like shoot better or fight mm-hmm. better. And, and uh, I had put up a post that was like, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a YouTube page. Um, you know, what do you, you know, where do you think I bring the most value? And I got like the first 12 responses were like your mindsetting and language work is, is stuff I'd love to hear more about. And, you know, I love how you put a positive spin on everything and your language game and Wednesday words this. And I was like, that's fucking cool. Yeah. So like that was a really cool thing. Again, bringing this back to what we were talking about, the people in the gym see that regularly. Like I'll be in the middle of a class and I'll say, you know, listen, guys, don't uh, hold on. Negation acknowledged. Like I'm going to point something out. Make sure that you understand why I'm pointing it out. I don't want you to put this here. I want you focusing here. And this is why. And they're like, what does negation acknowledge me? It's like, well, I like to talk in the positive, not focus on the negative. But in this specific case, I want you to know that I know I'm using the negative. And they'll be like, that's weird. And then all of a sudden, they'll start realizing like, oh, but I guess that does make sense. Because the more you talk about what you want us focusing on, we focus there, we don't get distracted. Um, I'll stop myself in the middle of something and be like, yeah, you know, I think I would take up the think. I would. And then I run through with that. And they'll be like, oh, that's, you know, you just stopped yourself and corrected yourself out loud verbally. What was that all about? Uh, so then they start asking questions about the language game. And then, you know, I can, I have an opportunity to then have a mutual conversation about it instead of pinning them down and being like, stop fucking using soft talk. You know, vacations <laughs> are, 
the Gations are the enemy, you know, which is what you would expect out of our industry. Um, so the lead by example becomes really big because it's like, look, guys, like I'm a, I'm a good fighter. I got a good head on my shoulders. I, you know, I, I've got a lot of room to grow still. Um, yet look where I'm at, look what I have accomplished. And I'm way happier just in the last three and a half years than I was in the first mm. 10 and a half in this industry. Um, and I'm still improving and I'm still a hell of a fighter and I'm still a hell of a tactician and I'm still a hell of a shot. And yet I'm that much better because I've gotten my head on right. And this is how mm -hmm. I'm doing it. So that would be my, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, my two prong approach, Sean, which is like right out of the gate. I want them to know this is you're showing up and this is a psychological thing, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So you came here for the physical tactics, the physical tactics, if your potential for success is 60% coming in as is, then I'm going to tell you that with the same exact physical tactics and putting all of the psychological components of it, that I'm going to raise your potential to 90% if you were to add these psychological and emotional components to execute on what you need to execute on for self-defense and then in the long term afterwards. So, hey, look, look let's look at this. So getting them aware of it, giving them a little nugget, which is like, hey, guys, here's the breathwork piece. You know, wow, look how impactful it was simply to focus on your breathing. This is why that actually works. Let me tell you about sympathetic versus parasympathetic and how it's going to impact your decision making. And then in the long game, it's constantly reinforcing those ideas in, a, in an inviting manner. You know, not in a forced disciplinary manner in any way, shape or form. It's like, look, guys, if you, if you want to, you know, if you want a piece of this, I'm happy to share it with you. Here's what it is. You know, if you're not, that's fine. You know, I'm, you know, you'll notice that the people that are taking advantage of this are making, they're making progression by leaps and bounds. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you're ready to get on that train, you let me know and we'll be here for that. That was awesome. Yeah. Awesome description. <laughs> I love, Thanks, I love all of that. <laughs> um, I had something that came to me as you were talking uh, you know, we talk a little bit about beliefs, um, limiting beliefs in particular. Um, but I'm, and I, and I, and I'm curious to go a little deeper if you'll, if you'll indulge me for a minute. Sure. Um, what is your personal relationship to violence? Mm -hmm. Um, do you believe it's something that's necessary? Uh, do you believe it's something that it's just something we have to deal with? It's a reality in the world. And so we, we have to figure out a way to, to defend ourselves against it. Um, and then the second part of that question is, how do you prepare uh, the people you teach, if at all, how to deal with the the trauma that's very likely going to happen mm -hmm. after a, after a violent event? Yeah. So that's a phenomenal. Uh, that's technically a three part question, JP, because the first yeah, one started three part. with, "What's my relationship to violence?" Yeah, that's um, that's the really the one I really want to dig into. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I, brother, in the long term, I have lived a very blessed life. Uh, I have had plenty of struggles growing up and stuff like that. Um, and there are some roots in there that we'll get into as far as like my relationship to violence in general. However, as I'm explaining this, it's, you know, inside of my brain, it was way worse than the outward outlook of it. Um, so, you know, my, uh, my father wasn't the best. Um, and again, a lot of us know this because of the circles we get into, 
you know, it's like things that happen to you at a young age, you got to take it. You got to take our view and our, our perspective of it with a grain of salt, because there's a mm-hmm. lot of emotions going on in regulation. So from my experience, what I can remember and as a 35 year old now have, you know, waded my way through and then, you know, anecdotally stories from others. Um, he wasn't a great guy. Um, I was three when my parents got divorced and then there was a, a pretty nasty um, custody battle that went on until I was probably nine or 10. So spanning about seven years. So, I mean, you know, that wow. was in there. However, I was in the grand scheme of things. I was very lucky. My brother, on the other hand, is five years older than me. You know, if you look at zero to seven is like the most impactful. Well, he was eight when they got divorced. So his entire life, he was part of that. Um, my sister is two and a half years older than me. So, you know, she was about five and a half. So they, they got a lot more than I did. Um, under, from a violence perspective, uh, from what I can remember and decipher, and again, take that with a grain of salt, but what, from what I've heard, um, you know, he was, was physically and psychologically abusive uh, towards my mother. Um, he was, you know, what you would consider like it sounds terrible and i'm saying it because it's anecdotally and like he would smack us around but not like it wasn't like choked slammed up against the walls punched in the head you know it was like the the smack on the back of the head for no reason um very old school you know old testament disciplinary type idea Mm -hmm. so that that element was into there um my mother was incredible and so where I'm going with this idea of like, what's my connection to violence, my deep desire to protect and defend my mother. I imagine heightened my view on violence and especially around domestic abuse. Like I was, that was a trigger when I was younger. I can remember vividly one of my friends in high school, he was like, we were 15 or 16. um, And at some point in time, him and his girlfriend had gotten into a, a verbal argument and at one point he like grabbed her by the shirt and I fucking lost it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it was like, there's a difference between you two want to hash it out because you know, we're all high school idiots. Like that's fine. But the second it was like, he grabbed her shirt and tugged it. It was like fucking game on. Um, so there, you know, there's a deep root that's into that. Um, so I, I, I imagine, you know, I mean, you got to remember like JP, I didn't start thinking about this shit until I was like 30 one like why did i get <laughs> uh-huh. into self-defense like why uh-huh. am i so obsessed with defending uh-huh. people um you know at the time it was just like i was an angry kid i wanted to hit people uh <laughs> but you know <laughs> looking back on it i imagine that's a pretty big part of it um you know like the that piece of it which i imagine i saw enough of um to to at least read something and then you had the custody battle and and you know altercations going through that i imagine that highlighted a lot of it um I wasn't severely around a bunch of violence. Like we lived near Youngstown. I grew up outside of Youngstown. So violence was on the radar. Um, I was there during like the Youngstown was murder capital USA. And so you kind of knew it was there. Um, I was a pissed off, angry little kid, uh, a lot of spite towards my father. So mm-hmm. the, the aspect of fighting in general, like kind of the, you know, we would refer to as like the monkey dance, puffing up your chest as a guy, like that type thing. I was, I was definitely, um, wasn't outright going out and looking for fights, but I certainly wasn't walking away from them, uh, mm. put them that way. So that's that. Um, again, it's not super deep, but, you know, again, for a potentially what I imagine for a three-year-old, 
you know, if I, the times I may have seen, you know, my mom gets smacked around or shoved up against a wall, like that's impactful. We might not know it, but in the long run that, that triggers there. Um, mm -hmm. So that was, yeah. that was what I would say as far as my relationship towards that, or at least my connection towards violence, uh, at least where it stemmed um, from the best of what I can decipher. Um, yeah, as you've done some of this work uh, in language and beliefs and uh, over the last, since you were 31, uh, when you came, when it came to light, what was going yeah. on here in the deeper layers, um, that as that relationship has evolved and after you shifted it, how has that changed your number one the capacity to actually teach somebody that you know what it means to be violent or to endure violence see violence whatever and yeah. then how and then how it underpins um your business model because a lot of times we have mm -hmm. people see these these businesses and they're doing great and all of a sudden they tank for some reason or another a lot of which comes back down to the person, the, either the business owner or the leader of that business, their beliefs yeah. on what I'm, whatever that thing is, right? So yeah. I wanna, so I wanna go a little. Where is your relationship to violence now, and how does yeah. that underpin your business? Yeah, um, that's a really cool question. Um, I am so, as far as the stories around the the previous, right? And that's that is. Uh, um, I want to make sure I word this properly because this is something where, you know, if somebody's listening in and they've had an experience previously, like where I'm at with my journey with this, I, I, I imagine other people need to understand like you're, everybody's at their own place in their journey and whatever you're feeling at this moment in time towards something that happened to you in the past, like it's legit, like whatever you're feeling, mm -hmm. it's, it's what you're feeling. So own that shit. Um, I am, I am very much. I have taken the time to address all of that. Um, you know, I, I spent, oh man, I mean, my, so my middle school, high school, even into college, when I got into jujitsu or not jujitsu specifically right at the gate, but like Krav Maga, CrossFit, jujitsu, things like that was driven by the, the internal stories I had around my father, my relationship with my father, my relationship with my grandfather, who was the the positive archetype on the other side as far as a male role model would go um and so i can tell you right now that my hateful angry male spite driven motivation was a huge reason i was successful through a bunch of shit um and i say that because you know spite shame anger can be incredible motivators um, however, if you go back to like how the very first thing we started talking about, remember what I said is the psychological and emotional training is the long game mm -hmm. because the short term mm -hmm. stuff, it can get you places very quickly, but what you don't realize is you're creating, you know, you're creating a hole just as deep as your ability to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's where I was at. I was constantly you know, uh, imagining a, a, a black hole in which I belonged to and my spite and anger was pulling me out of the black hole, but it was an imaginary black hole that I created type idea. So I, I say that to say through a series of works, I, I came to peace with what had happened in the past. I started realizing a couple of things. First off, uh, I, I realized I was angry all the fucking time. Even when I was happy, I was angry. And mm -hmm. so what ended up, 
what ended up happening is when I was successful, instead of being able to sit back and be like, wow, look at what I've done. It just pissed me off that I wasn't at the next level already. Like mm. it, it, I, I, like everything was just fueled by anger and it, you know, I did a good job of hiding it for a long time and stuff like that, but it would just, it would just eat me up and I would snap super fast. And I was very emotional about some things and it definitely tore some very good relationships up. Um, you know, one of which being one of the mentors that, uh, first taught me Krav Maga. And, uh, so yeah, so I had that, I was angry all the time. So I started realizing like, all right, I'm angry all the time. This isn't cool. I should probably figure this out. Uh, and then I started, I actually had a friend, uh, and for as impactful as this quote is, you would think I would have it memorized by now. Um, but I had a buddy of mine, uh, send me a quote that was just super fucking powerful after I had made a post about how, like, I had this epiphany one day that was like, you know, all I ever think about with my dad is all the terrible moments. And I had this epiphany one time, I don't know, I was like 27 or some, something like that, 27, 28. And I remember sitting back and being like, wow, we had a shit ton of good times at my dad's place. You know what I mean? Like we, he had a boat, we had a go-kart, um, he owned a, a card shop. It was all this type of shit. And I had this idea that was like, wow, I buried all of these joyful memories that, you know, let's call it 80% because of the 20% that was bad. And I understand that the 20% was impactful and I should uh, um, respect that. And I should see that. And it's not a forgiveness, you know, by any means that the 80% was better than the 20 but imagine how much joy in life I'm burying because I'm so hyper-focused on the minority, which is bad. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was this weird moment. I don't, I, I can't, I don't know that I can pinpoint what the shift was or whatever, but I can vividly remember sitting on my couch at, at our old house and just sitting there and being like, man, we had a hell of a lot of good times, you know, riding the go-kart and being on the boat and all that type of stuff. And so then I, I saw him, I started to view my dad as a human instead of an identity that was, I was tied to. And when I could do that, and again, guys, you got to remember, this was before I understood, I, I didn't have a language around this. I hadn't, nobody had mm -hmm. introduced me to it. So I, it was just this moment that was like, oh yeah, you know, I do dumb shit. I make mistakes all the time. I can be a total asshole. Um, I also do good stuff. Well, fuck, I guess that's what humans are. And I, it was this really cool separation. But anyway, a buddy of mine, I had made a post about that. And a buddy of mine uh, commented, uh, long ago, somebody gave me a gift of dark or a box of darkness. Um, and it wasn't until now I realized it was a gift as well. As something along those lines. And again, like I said, for as impactful as that fucking quote was, you would think I would have it, you know, verbatim at this point. <laughs> um, but it, that was just such a cool thing. It was like I had focused so much on the bad shit. And because of that bad shit, it actually created a very resilient uh, uh, individual, a very resilient ability to, to push through suffering and things like that. But it also gave me and put me in a position where now when I can remove myself from that, it's like, okay, that was, that was just a, a series of things that happened to me versus this is what fuels me. Um, and whenever I was able to make that connection, that really, I feel like is where I just turned over a leaf. And I imagine a huge part of that has to do with the relationship with my, my wife, um, who's just insanely awesome. Um, and, and starting to realize as life solidified that, oh, wow, I'm actually interested in the long game here. Like I want to be with my wife for a long time. And the very few fights her and I have are usually because I'm a fucking hothead. You know what I mean? It's not, it makes no sense. Like I need to kill that. 
uh, or, you know, hey, like these, these business decisions I'm making, kind of to your point, JP, I'm making them emotionally. Like mm. this makes no fucking sense mm-hmm. for me to, you know, do this, 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 and this. I'm doing it because I imagine that, you know, if I don't take this opportunity right now, no other opportunity is going to come up and I'm obsessed and driven by executing on it. So anyway, so that's, that was a big turning point for me. Um, and then I kept going down that road with, with Drew Dillon. Um, I imagine you guys know that name or at least heard it. Um, mm-hmm, he's a dude. really good friend of mine. Yeah. Drew's incredible. Um, he's a really good friend of mine. Project Lift is based out of our facility. Um, we share the same building. So him and I hang a lot. So her, him and I went through a bunch of personal development together and through strong coach and then really in lifted level one, um, I, I faced that whole package of shit head on, made my peace with it. Um, you can, you can talk about my father and there's zero anger, zero resentment. Um, there's definitely still some, there's still a, a sense of longing, uh, with that story for sure, which is like, man, I see all the, you know, I see some other people that have really good relationships with their dad. Like, man, wouldn't that have been cool? Um, so there's still a sense there. However, the anger has subsided. Um, I could sit across from him and have dinner and, and be very mellow and chill. I haven't, I mean, I have, we, other than text message, we haven't talked in years, but so I've, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with that, um, through tears and shit. So like, if anybody's listening on, like, this wasn't like me out in my backyard, you know, pounding my chest and like fucking grunting <laughs> while drinking mead and just getting over it. Uh, you know, it was fucking, you know, doing, you know, having some, having a good fucking cry, journaling, uh, addressing stories head on, making peace with, with both dichotomies, which is like the good and the bad identities I associated with, um, you know, creating some space in between that stimulus response. Mark England doing the thing he does where he can turn a perfectly happy conversation into a deep emotional dive into your fucking soul. Um <laughs> So there was a, there was a lot there and to be, you know, to be side sidebar on this, I really had to, to, not had to, I really chose to make that piece after my son was born. So I have a, a almost six-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, never once, you know, there's nothing abusive, anything like that. Like those tendencies never popped out of me, but I noticed a shorter fuse when it came to my level of frustration and that comes with kids in general, but it, I hadn't, not that I had no control over it, but the space between stimulus and response was so small. It was like, I knew it was fessing up and I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. I literally would have to remove myself. And, um, that's when I really started to that. I actually was afraid. Um, the first year that, that he was born the first year to two years, where I actually had a fear boil up in me that was like, holy fuck. And those stories started to creep back up. And I was like, am I like my father? Um, and thank God that was about the time I found strong coaching and lifted because I was able to then go back and, and further create that separation and build my own identity around that. So that's that, that's where I'm at now with it. Um, violence in general is it's something that, you know, one of the things you said earlier is, do you feel like, you know, relationship with violence or, or the way you worded it was like, is necessary? Should, should we all be leaning into this? Um, and, and yes, uh, it's, it's, it's not going anywhere. Um, depending on 
what your belief system is. You can track it back to, you know, Cain and Abel. If you want to go that route, if you're the biblical sense, um, you can track it back to all of the violent atrocities that have happened over the years, every one of which has been done and executed out by humans. Um, you can take it a completely different route and you can say it's been executed out by completely normal humans, um, which scares the shit out of people and should scare the shit out of you. You have a couple of people that get in charge and learn how to coerce a large group of people and you have atrocities. Like I can't uh, uh, go in and massacre a village as an individual or as an individual. Mm-hmm. There has to be a bunch of people there. Well, the, mm-hmm. the percentage base that I am going to find the exact 350 sociopaths in one place. And we just all happen to immediately and spontaneously agree that, you know, Hey, we're all sociopaths. Let's just go murder a bunch of people. Like that's not how those things happen. Um, mm-hmm. It's a slow degradation. It's a, a, a lot of things. Actually, uh, if those of you out there, and this is something that I highly encourage law enforcement, military, especially to, to dive into, but I do believe that it's super powerful for civilians as well. Uh, read the book, Ordinary Men. Um, if you have yet to read the book, Ordinary Men, it is a, uh, a deep dive into a group of, um, I believe they were Polish, uh, but essentially like Polish citizens that were law enforcement officers, you know, all that type of stuff. But they weren't, they were older. So they weren't indoctrinated as young neo-Nazis or anything like that. And this is during World War II. And it essentially documents how they were put in charge of going back through towns in Poland uh, and essentially going through and eradicating, you know, large amounts of Jews. Um, and it's very interesting because it shows you how they go from normal individuals that are removed from the ideology and it's slowly you see them get broken down and broken down and they execute one task and and it's it's a it's a terrifying and fascinating documentation of how shit like this happens um i also encourage you and jordan peterson does a good job talking about this jocko willink as well does a good job of talking about this but when you read through books like that especially ordinary men put yourself in the position of the people doing the bad stuff we have a Mm. tendency to put ourselves in the hero role all the time like oh i would never Mm. do that i would never do this and the reality of that is that's just not true um (laughs) we uh, none of us know what the hell we would do under those circumstances um so i encourage you to to look through that so anyway violence is is here um Mm -hmm. whether you like it or not uh you know people people have a massive amount of resistance to sit down and hash out issues that bring upon depression. So if we can't get people to, to want to lean into very uncomfortable resistance work to simply be happier, then it's a really hard sell to say that the person that is currently enjoying being violent is going to make themselves uncomfortable to set aside the shit they need internally to no longer be violent. Uh, mm. And if you go by the, uh, the, you know, Marshall Rosenberg, nonviolent communication, you know, every act of violence and chaos is, is uh, the outcrying of an unmet need. Right. So until we can all sit down and, and fucking talk about our emotions and feelings and cry together and all that kind of shit, 
violence is going to be out there. Um, it's, it's where it's yeah. at. So go ahead. I, I really appreciate that you brought that up. Um, one of the things that we've, we've developed into and, and grown in ourselves, and I know I have, has been uh, the journey into creating really good boundaries and claiming your sovereignty. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I have always thought about self-defense has been, uh, well, as it relates to violence, is I reserve my right to respond to whatever violence that may or may not happen where I am in my life. And that varies. It depends where you are. Uh, it depends who you are. It depends what kind of violence you're willing to take um, participate in. You were talking a little bit earlier about uh, using a knife and feeling someone get stabbed and their blood all over your hand. Like, are you really truly capable and ready to do that, or are you? Would you rather learn how to shoot a, a, a you know small handgun? Um, and it, it's not. It's one of the things that's actually not talked about in the military. You know, to bring it back to our experience, as a decision that you need to make on your own. It's it's just like here's violence, accept it, embrace it, kill. Literally, we say kill like Marines do all the time. Cool. Um, well, yeah, literally all two, the time. And so two I, things I, that yeah, well, two things with that real quick, JP, that I want to point out. One, you know what you said was like I'm going to claim you know my level of responsibility to, or my level of response, like how I'm going to respond to this. One thing that I would I would put on top of that is. At the end of the day, every single one of us, our personal security is up to us only. And that's not like a, a puff your chest, you know, oh, it's up to you. Don't wait for anybody. Nobody's coming. Like, that's the reality of it. Like, mm -hmm. if you choose to not pursue self-defense training or not come up with some type of preventative measures, that's fine. Like, I, you know, I'm not one to run around and say everybody has to do training. Um, however, when you get attacked and things don't go the way you wanted it to, you have given up your right, uh, not given up completely, obviously, you can complain all the fuck you want. But the reality of it is you chose not to prepare for that situation, which, you know, there's a high percentage, some of us are going to get touched by violence to some degree, whether it's lower, minor violence or larger. So it's not a, a uh, you know, negation acknowledged. It's, it's not someone else's job to go out of their way to make things safe for us. It is our job to understand the context of our life. And then we get to choose the level that we want to participate. So mm -hmm. you can, you can want to defend yourself, but wanting won't defend you. You can want to protect your family and keep your family safe. And you can claim that you will do that. However, your actual priorities and understanding are shown through your actions. You don't, people, people don't just get good at fighting. You, you don't know, rise to the level of the situation. You fall yeah, to the level of your training. Yeah, exactly. And if people started to realize, you know, again, we live in an overwhelmingly peaceful time. I know that sounds crazy as a statement to say, because like, oh, we've, you know, we've got this situation over here and the country is definitely decisive and there's pockets you know on the extremes on either side and all that type of stuff and you know yes violence is up this year for a myriad of reasons that we could go into and all that type of stuff however if in the grand scheme of things if you went back a hundred years 
we're a lot, we have a lot longer life expectancy. And especially mm-hmm. most of us in the United States, we live in a generally peaceful time uh, in the grand scheme of things. The problem with that is because of convenience and safety, there's a lot less things that we need to take account for or, or seemingly need to take account for in my experience um, because we're, we're less touched by those issues, right? Like, I mean, just a hundred years ago, you would have had to figure out how to get your own food. You would have had to figure out how to get, you know, you would have, you're too far away from a doctor to do anything. So you at least understood basic first aid and care and maintenance. Um, you know, there, most of the jobs were a hell of a lot more hardworking. So there was a different level of just overall physical ability, stuff like that. Well, then most of us are removed from violence. Most of us aren't going to get a knife pulled on us or a gun pulled on us. However, mm-hmm. percentage base, if it does happen, it's up to you to do something about it. It's no one else's job. You know, even when, you know, I know one of the things that we had discussed, Lance, was like active shooter response and stuff like that. Even if you live in a good area with a high response time, let's say that you have a, an exceptional response time of three minutes by local law enforcement. Three minutes is a fucking eternity. Yep. If you're already in a fight, like yep. I, three minutes is a round of boxing for God's sakes before law enforcement gets there. And, and you find me one person without any physical training or one person that hasn't boxed that can last a three minute boxing match at an accelerated mm-hmm. pace, like at a life saving life or death pace. Mm-hmm. Find me anybody. You can find me the best CrossFitter in the fucking world. I'll put him in there for a three-minute boxing round against somebody who's an unwilling participant and comes at them violently, not even skillfully, just comes at them violently. And they will be fucking dead three minutes in. Yep. And that's the amount of time that it's going to take for law enforcement to get to you, by the way, after the 911 call is made. Right. So we don't even know how long the 911 call takes. So long story short, you know. It's, it's, you get to choose if you choose to defend yourself or if you want to defend yourself, you need to back your desire up by showing you're actually prioritizing it and getting training in my experience, in my opinion, it's just strictly opinion. However, at the end of the day, when, when violence comes, you must be trained into that. Um, so that's one piece. Now to your second part, JP, that you mentioned up, um, that I, you know, I loosely interrupted you with, but, uh, think about you know, and again, you guys have been through uh, military training, you've gone and you've served and all that. Think about the training time that it takes, uh, especially if we're in an actual battle, in an actual war of some sort of time. In the grand scheme of things, it's very short, right? Like if you're talking, I mean, think about, it's taken me three years to, well, four plus to emotionally hash out a low level of violence in my life so that I wasn't an asshole kid. You know what I mean? Like that's a low level amount of things I needed to hash out to just be a good human and a good leader and take care of people. Well, now we're, we're taking you, dropping you into something, and then we're going to send you off to essentially go off and kill other people because we've determined it's justified in some form or fashion. It's the greater good, whatever that is. But we're only giving you this amount of training. So if it's mm-hmm. taken me four years to get at peace with my father that maybe smacked me in the head 12 times, tops, holy shit, right? So what do we, what do we, when we look at military, if I've got you for, you know, let's say a year, 
year and a half even if we're going to go like, all right, cool, we're going to get you. And we're talking like low level, we'll send you over. Well, what do I need you to do? If I need you to execute, you know, and, and do the tasks, I have to create a, an individual that listens to commands, follows commands and orders. I don't have time to genuinely, genuinely deal with the emotional uh, uh, sides of things that can take people long term or get you in a place where you're comfortable doing what you need to do. So what do we need to do? What we need to do is we need to create, not need to, what we're choosing to do is we choose to create a separation between humans and who we're fighting. So instead of mm -hmm. dealing with the fact that you need to go out and you need to kill another person across from you, that again, they might be the worst fucking human in the world. However, it's still a human. It is significantly harder to convince somebody to kill a, an explicit human, even if they're bad and deserve it, than it is to slowly start to remove the identity around what that human is and turn them into the other, right? And that's the, it's also yeah. the problem with mm -hmm. decisive one side to the next. If that's also had... why it's really difficult to um, prepare people for the post uh, traumas yes. of that violence because you can't you're you're literally intentionally desensitizing mm -hmm. your ability yeah. to think about death and killing in a way that's actually like a decision that you're making you're not making a decision when you're being trained like what you just mentioned you're just yeah. like I mean it's desensitized to the point where it's all of our targets are, you know, rounded. Uh, they don't actually look like a human. They look like the shape of a human. Um, and, you know, even the way we talk about uh, our perceived enemies in the military. That's why there's, I, I never equate the two together, like military mm -hmm. style of training and self-defense style of training. I mean, I couldn't be more opposed. Yeah. Um, because well, and, I, and I would, I would argue that we're desensitizing enough to get the action we need done. Right, exactly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we're not, we're still going to fall short because you still know at some point in time, in some way, deep down inside, bomb, 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 I killed humans. And that's then when I get back into the situation where I'm oftentimes, and again, I'm not speaking from experience by any means, I have no military background. So, you know, this is solely from conversations I've had with other individuals in, in research. But now we, we remove them from that context. We bring them back into this case. And now all of a sudden, deep down inside, you knew you were killing humans. So then mm -hmm. that's where it starts to creep back up when you get around all of this other area. And then, yeah, there's the, the sense of purpose and some other things that can come up from that. However, you, you can't remove that completely. You can't just go out, shoot some targets, and then come back and, and genuinely, honestly think that's all you did was go out and shoot targets. So the military is doing a very good job of doing what they need to do to get people to execute the way that they need to execute as far as executing tasks and getting things done. And then at the end of the day, because we haven't set them up with a plan and because we may have even lowered what they're doing in their mind instead of abruptly addressing it, we give them no plan to then deal with the long-term effects and that each individual is left to themselves to, to sort out their own feelings. And that's a. Yeah. For, for a, by the way, for a non-vet, it's a really good description of, of that, of that cycle. Um, I have, un, I have unfortunately, uh, well, you know what, I'm going to flip that on its head. I'm going to say I have fortunately been in a position uh, um, 
to help some people that are, are, we're really deep into that. Um, you know, I, I, you know, my initial thought wants to say unfortunate cause I never wanted them to be there, but it's unfortunate that I was given a skill set to be able to talk with them, mm-hmm. um, and, and in that position. So, uh, I have, I have, I've heard some, some shuddering stories, um, you know, in that, uh, so, you know, again, I, I can only speak secondhand from that, but it's, that's such a huge piece of the puzzle. And like you said, military training is completely different than uh, um, civilian self-defense and civilian self-defense is completely different than law enforcement and law enforcement is completely different than, than, you know, firefighter. It's there's context to certain different jobs. There may be overlaps. They're not the same because you have completely different intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's completely different intentions. I think in many ways also like, you know, we are, dealing with in our programs with healing mostly and shifting perspective and, and shifting language and, and stuff like that. And even in our journey of, of going to, to have these conversations, they are, they're different experiences and there are some, some, you know, significant overlaps. And I would still say mm-hmm. that that overlaps like 30%, um, yeah. maybe 40 if we're being super liberal with it. Um, yeah. but one of the questions I had actually that that's really intricately tied to what you just said is, so you, you've, you know, you're admitting that all these different areas are uh, completely different with regard to violence, even. The, the, basics, the basic underpinning of what they do is already treating it in a different way, right? You, mm-hmm. you mentioned that about military training. So with regard to your own um, embodied way of showing up, uh, you know, as a leader and then creating mm-hmm. programs for people, how do you then create... Um, the conversation you said you started the conversation with hey end of the day we're killing someone that's what this gun does it kills someone how do you create the um environment um uh structure your workshops in, in a way that that speaks from a point of self-defense mm-hmm. rather than liberal violence of just like hey you know how to shoot now yeah yeah, that's a great question. Um, the it, it requ- wouldn't require. Yeah, it requires. Let's be real. Uh, it's a process, right? That's something. That's mm-hmm. that's terminology that we we hear in these circles. Um, things like this are a process. They're a continual process. Um, so you know, so you know, for me personally, like I said, like I've I've, you know, let's call it made peace um, with my past with my father. However, that's not to say that elements of that won't creep up in some place. It's still a process. Right. I still need to stay on top of it. Um, so one of the largest downfalls, again, in my opinion, and in my experience in our industry, defensive tactics, self-defense, whether I'm teaching it to military, law enforcement, civilians, whatever the context is, is that we, we imagine that if we're presented with X amount of material, we now own X amount of material, right? So if you were to show up, um, like for instance, you know, I, uh, I just taught a four hour um, knife defense seminar in uh, Northern Ohio. And if you show up, you saw four hours of material, let's say I taught you whatever, 20 bullet points. The assumption is that I now know these 20 bullet points, but that's not, that's, that's inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't know those 20 bullet points. You were presented by those 20 bullet points. By the time you leave that seminar, you may be processed eight of the 20. 
And then if you choose to continue to drill and train and practice and consistently put that in there, uh, you know, then maybe you own those eight, most likely you'll own six. You know, if you want to look at these are arbitrary numbers, Mm, not mm, statistically mm, accurate. It's pretty damn accurate. My experience, most people, they're not going to continue to train. So they saw 20 things, they absorbed eight. And then every now and again, they'll remember one, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's generally what I saw that thing at that seminar is what usually happens. Um, and that's unfortunate because oftentimes in my experience, the instructors presented as look at all this cool shit I just showed you. And it's like, well, let's be realistic. I'm not going to remember half of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really over the years have shifted the way that I teach with mm-hmm. that in mind. How do I either, I usually go in with the intent of a couple of things. One, I want to highlight how necessary it is to continue to train this after I leave. That's like my main thing. Any, any seminar I go into, let me point out to you that you need to continually train this if you're going to own it. So that's a, a major piece. Um, the second piece is I really try to show, even though I'm showing maybe technical things or tactical things, I really try to create overarching concepts that mm. then can uh, encompass X amount of things so that in the very least, you know, maybe I showed you 20 techniques, but I teach you five concepts maybe you'll remember four out of the five concepts and then that can continue to bring value to you as you continue on your journey. Mm, So maybe that's philosophy of self-defense. Yes. Like kind of Um, weaved into all your tactics. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then, you know, if you look at it, you know, from a third perspective, I, I make it very, uh, I make myself very accessible to continued questioning or continued access. Um, and then, so anything I go into, so let's, let's take the knife control concepts, right. Uh, which is the program I ran at Coyote Falls. So I go up there, I'm going to teach for four hours. I reiterate continually. The entire purpose of this system is to teach you how to practice. So none of these techniques are going to serve you individually. It's the practicing element, the continual consistency through it that gets there. So I show them that while I'm doing that, I'm teaching them the concepts around it. Hey, we have a couple of really basic concepts, um, like two-on-one, for instance. If somebody has a blade in, in their right hand, I am more likely to gain control using two of my arms versus one of their arms, right? Now, that doesn't mitigate them punching me, grabbing me with their other hand. However, it mitigates or it gives me the best potential to mitigate the knife itself. So I'm two-on-one as a basic concept. Um, it's easier to fight people when you're on their back than it is in mm-hmm. front of them. So that's a second concept. Can we move our way towards the back? Um, you know, things along those lines. So I'm leaving them with basic concepts that I'm then showing them how to express through technique. Right. Um, and then there's that piece. And then every single time it's, Hey guys, look, this is my email address. Um, you know, my, my access to any of my points, please comment on videos, send me an email. Um, you know, I check my email twice a week, so definitely give me at least 72 hours to respond. However, I get back to all my emails. Please get a hold of me. So I'm, I'm, again, like you talk about that idea of, you know, how do you present these things and, and get into that? It's like, well, I want you to know this is going to take time. So let me, let me make it as digestible as possible, as memorable as possible, as practicable as possible. And then, you know, let me lay it out in a manner where then I can support you going farther. So now with that, back to the point of the the emotional and psychological components to it, I'm trickling in pieces of that because I, it, it's, 
it is less meaningful. It lacks, you know, efficacy and definitely efficiency for me to try to, in four hours, teach somebody how to defend a knife, how to grapple properly, and then also Mm -hmm. how to manage, completely manage their emotions. That's very difficult. So, yeah, right. So all of those would require like a 10 week retreat, (laughs) you know, (laughs) every day there. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's, it's again, those little nuggets where it's like, listen, you guys showed up for a knife defense seminar. Let's talk. I'm dropping little, little reality checks around pragmatic approaches to this realism to this. Um, I'm dropping in breath work. All of my seminars involve breath work. If you, if you bring me in for active shooter response, we're going to talk about breathing. If you bring me in for knife control concepts, we're going to talk about breathing. Um, you know, obviously, if you bring me in for any type of like language work, we're going to talk about breathing. Um, mm-hmm. If you bring me in for strength and conditioning, we're going to talk about breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I give them that nugget to go with. I teach them the idea of lengthening your exhales, uh, having audible, intentional breath and good, proper decision making. Those three elements are in everything that I teach, especially if I'm if if there's a high potential, I only am going to see them once. So a seminar setting. The assumption is I may never see you again. I only get four hours to make the biggest impact for you. So these are the big concepts I believe are most impactful. More importantly, I need you to know that you need to practice this. And even more on top of that, I'm here to support you in continuing to practice this if you so choose to engage in it. That's the, the, the way I approach uh, uh, everything that I teach. Mm. I'll, I will then present in a manner that expresses language. Uh, expresses the emotional work. However, in my experience, you know, again, like we said earlier, they've got a, a, in, you know, giving them a win that they can feel starts to create buy-in that, that we can then nurture over time versus pulling something from left field, which then may create a, a, a resentment or a detachment for anything else I'm going to teach. It's a yeah. lot harder. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to explain to people why language is so powerful because it does take time to settle in. Mm-hmm. Um, that just said, create confusion, right? Confusion. Yes. People yeah, are yeah. Talking about. yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. said, I will use it. Like for instance, uh, at that, that seminar that I just did on Sunday, um, I had everybody run a series of drills on the right arm. Right. And they got through those drills and they were looking really good. And then it was like, okay, guys, look, you know, there, there's a chance it's rare, but there is a chance that the person switches hands and the knife goes into their left hand. So what we're going to do for the next three minutes is you're going to run the same exact drills on the left hand and universally the whole entire room goes, ah, it does that. You know what I mean? Um, and you can, <laughs> you can laugh that off. Right. Mm-hmm. So as an instructor, you have a lot of decisions. You can laugh that off. Um, and be like, ha ha ha. Yeah, I know it sucks. Have fun. Like you do that thing. Um, you can double down on being a drill sergeant, you know, stop fucking whining, just do it. Like that's, you know, another mm-hmm. thing you'll find in our, our industry a lot. Um, <laughs> what I chose to do in that moment was call their attention back to me. Cause I had said like, okay guys, now you're going to do it on your left side. And everybody does that. And I go, guys, listen, what you just expressed was a sense of what you know is discomfort and anxiety about your performance of a movement. Remove emotion from that. All this means when you feel that anxiety and when you feel that like, oh, this is going to be terrible. What that means in training is slow down. That's it. Change the, change the response. 
right? This isn't, oh my God, I'm going to be terrible at this. Uh, this is awful. I don't want to do it because I may look bad. I may be embarrassed. I said, that's, that's not what that is. We, we, we get to remove that response and associate a new response. If I ever feel this feeling come up or that noise comes out of my mouth, that is a simple signification that I slow down. I'm going to need a little more focus on this side. I'm going to need a little more blending on this side, right? And again, like bringing it back to our conversation, that's not in my lesson plan, right? That's not something that I specifically write out. Let me show them how to, you know, remove uh, mm-hmm. negative mm-hmm. triggers and replace them with positive triggers. I'm, I have enough dexterity in this field to implement it when it's necessary and when you, when it's going to make an impact. Um, and I've also fucked it up enough to know <laughs> when it's going to make an impact. And yeah, when hey, it's going to fall on deaf ears, you know. That's the definition of world-class coaching. Right, Bring exactly. It, bringing that. in all the tools all at once to create an experience that's yeah. unlike other, unlike any other. Yeah, that's and I got amazing. a lot of, I got a lot of ahas with that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a lot of people going like, oh fuck, like I never thought about that. I was like, guys, just remove emotion from it. We're training. You know, none of us are good at this yet. So cool it. You feel that come up, that means slow down. That's all that means. Doesn't mean anything else. It means slow down hmm. until you get good. And then you get to go faster and you get to go faster and you get to go faster. Um, so yeah, there's that. I have no idea if you asked another question and we missed it or anything. <laughs> I feel like there's been like seven. Uh, you can pull them back out if you want, but that was uh that's how oh. I approach implementing that. Gotcha. No, no more questions from me. <laughs> uh, Aaron. We, like I said at the beginning, like we have set questions and we might hit them. (laughs) We started about talking about emotions, you know, zero to seven age and how our family affects our our upbringing (laughs) and how we're going to respond to stress. Golden, golden. I love it, man. Um, That's huge. Thank you for being on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for imparting some wisdom and some training and some just golden nuggets. Um, appreciate that. If, well, let's take out the F when somebody listens to this and they're like, damn, <laughs> this guy is good. Where can they find you? Great question. Um, I, I primarily on the social world, I primarily float, uh, on Instagram. I push things to Facebook. I'm definitely more active on Instagram. Um, and that's Janetti Aaron. So it's my name's backwards, uh, J A N N E T T I and then A A R O N. Um, that's both on Facebook and Instagram. But like I said, primarily on Instagram. Uh, you can find um, our knife seminar uh, at Knife Control Concepts on Instagram. And then uh, my training facility here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, that's on Instagram, Endeavor DCF. Uh, or you can check out the website, EndeavorDCF.com. Uh, I've got a weekly newsletter if people want to keep up with uh, you know, my ramblings and technique videos and things like that. Um, I do, you know, for those listening in, um, we do a ton of cool tactical shit. We have a very, you know, uh, not to toot my own horn, but we have a crap ton of talent at our gym, ranging from firearms to Krav Maga, to self-defense, Kali, boxing, kickboxing, everything else in between. So we do that too. <laughs> I just, I, uh, take out the just, uh, I have realized the power of the emotional side of things in fighting, um, in several ways. And so you're going to get a good mixture of that. So my weekly newsletter that comes out on Thursdays uh, is a good mixture of that. There's usually an article post um, dealing with something with language, psychology, mindset, something along those lines. 
and then uh, a technical video of some sort. Um, and then my ramblings and antics and stuff like that are on there. Like I've been on uh, a kick of ice baths, so like doing ice baths and immediately doing workouts afterwards, which is fun. Um, so yeah, that's all there. They can find that all on the, uh, on the Instagrams. Um, you can pick up a copy of my, my book. I wrote a book called, uh, how to survive an active killer, uh, an honest look at your role in the age of mass violence. Uh, you can pick that up on Amazon. Um, our knife control concepts program. We actually do, uh, there's a 30 day online program. Um, so you can do it at your own pace. Uh, however, it's broken up into 30 lessons. It runs through our entire stand-up module. Um, essentially teaching how you implement wrestling, grappling, and striking into knife defense uh, and the importance of it. Um, it's really good for law enforcement, military. It's really good for firefighters. We didn't talk about this much, but I'm just going to throw this nugget in there. Um, medics and firefighters, you resuscitate somebody that's been doing drugs. Uh, you come up on a scene of a domestic violence where somebody's been beat up and you're patching them up and they're still pissed off and angry. Like you got to be able to defend yourself. So. Um, that piece is in there. So that's a great element to get into that as well. Uh, and then you can find us in uh, Richmond for the resilience training, uh, February 19th and 20th with uh, Brandon Powell and the one and only Mark England. We do a two day uh, breath work, ice work, language work, and fighting. Uh, this, this time we're going to be shooting guns and everything. So that'll be February 19th and 20th uh, in Richmond, Kentucky. So, or Richmond, Virginia. So all over the place, man. That's where you'll find me. Wow. Uh, <laughs> a very, I was going to say very busy. I don't like busy. Very productive individual you yeah. are. Thank um, you. Aaron, thanks again. Um, Appreciate th you guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you guys later.